0: welcome to Chasing Leviathan. I'm your host, PJ Weary, and I'm here today with Megan Sullivan, Dr. Megan Sullivan. Uh, She is the Wilsey Family Collegiate Professor of Philosophy at the University of Notre Dame. She serves as the director of the Notre Dame Institute for Advanced Studies, also is the founder of Notre Dame's God and the Good Life program. Her research tends to focus on philosophical problems concerning time, modality, rational planning, value theory, and religious belief, sometimes all five at once. Uh, Today, we're going to be talking about uh, time biases, uh, a theory of rational planning and personal persistence. So kind of the main question we'll be dealing with is how do our biases about time uh, prevent us from thinking well about, uh, or how can we think better about time biases so that we can lead the good life? Uh, And that kind of goes towards even some of your other writings. Um, You just released uh, The Good Life Method. Uh, written along with Paul Blaschko. I probably just butchered that name, but um, <laughs> close enough. <laughs> uh, and then uh, and then you have another book coming out, uh, Agapism. Uh, how do you say that?
1: I say Agapism, but okay. it, my, my ancient <laughs> Greek pronunciation is, is sorely lacking. And I'm from North Carolina, so pretty much everything I say is a little bit off.
0: Oh, there you go. Yeah. Yeah, I uh I lived in New England, Florida, and then the Midwest, and then back in Florida. So I have a Midwestern accent for the most part, but I say y'all, and then it comes it becomes Southern. It's strange. It's, it's You've got an the podcaster, odd podcaster yeah. accent. <laughs> yes. Generic, generic North exactly. American uh broadcaster accent. Yes. Uh so Gopism, moral responsibility in our inner lives. Uh, which that's the tentative title. And uh really excited. Uh to have you on. I think uh you definitely uh completely match what chasing the viathan's all about, this idea of pursuing big questions. So thank you for joining us today.
1: Oh, thank you. I'm really excited to talk about this.
0: Uh so tell us a little bit before we get started, how did you one get into philosophy? And two, um, how did you get interested in the good life in particular?
1: These are great questions. Uh, I share this story with my students quite a bit, but a, a lot of my like, college freshmen just have no idea what philosophy is, or they think, they think it's like Nietzsche or Black Berets, or is, are we in the Matrix? They really don't understand it as a discipline before I see them, and I'm certainly the first professional philosopher most of them have ever met. But when I was in high school, one of my very best friends, her father was a philosophy professor at the local university. So I actually did know a philosopher, at least really knew the child of a philosopher when I was younger. And I remember I was a super judgmental, totally awful teenager. And me and my catty friends from high school would talk about how we did not understand how this was a real job. And like, we we (laughs) didn't understand his books. And like, we were, we were, I I had harshly judged philosophers before I even got to college. And if you told me when I was 17, I would end up having that job, I would have probably begged you to kill me. But that's (laughs) because I was totally benighted. You know, I was very self absorbed and kind of in the cave at that phase. I went to college at the University of Virginia. And uh, thought for sure that I was destined to be a lawyer. Mm. And I loved doing debate when I was in high school. And I uh, planned on majoring in politics at UVA and just going straight into law school and was dead set on that. And like all freshmen, I couldn't get all the classes that I had in my master plan that first semester. And my academic advisor stuck me in this ethics class called Issues of Life and Death, which you know sounded close cool. enough for my purposes to the kinds of topics I cared about in politics. Yeah. So I took it and it was this huge lecture class taught by Cora Diamond. I know now that she's a very prominent uh, philosopher, but at the time she, you know, I, could, I couldn't have picked her out of a lineup. And, and she was so magnetic. And I loved everything that we read in that class. And I just remember the very first assignment we got for the midterm, we'd been reading a bunch of David Hume on uh, on suicide and personal mm. identity. And she posed us this essay question for the first midterm. Is it uh, morally acceptable to commit suicide? Which seemed like such a dangerous question for me as a freshman. Like a I was yeah, I just remember thinking, Am yeah. I allowed to ask that? Am I allowed to answer it? Um, is this a trap? Because it just seems so like, you know, like a live wire question. And, you know, we had to make an argument using the the methods that we'd been learning in the class. And she really wanted to know, she wanted us to know the truth about the answer to the question. So it's not just mm. what dead people thought about this question, but what is the answer? And what I just, the part think? of me that loved debate, the part of me that like clearly had this itch to ask philosophical questions just absolutely loved working on that assignment and i loved it so much more than my other classes uh where i just felt like i was uh, trying to figure out other people's views but i wasn't necessarily moving anywhere so i remember after that class i thought i'm gonna make philosophy my hobby like i'm gonna take more classes like this they'll be like a way of letting off some steam and finding meaning in college but of course i have to keep taking government and econ classes because i'm gonna be a lawyer um (laughs) And uh, as as I love that philosophy
0: is just your hobby, right? Like questions of meaning. Eh, That's what I do on the side. Yeah.
1: I made a plan when I was 16 to be a lawyer and I'm not never, ever going to revise it. (laughs) ever. Uh, And of course, my I I did an internship the summer between my second and third year of college with this kind of pre-law research sort of internship thing. And on paper, it looked really awesome. And I hated it. I I had this Mm. journal from that summer where every day I would go to this job and just journal about how much I didn't like it and how bored I was. And I would go home at night. I was living in a college dorm in another campus at that time. And I go home and I would read philosophy books and Stephen King novels. And I remember getting back from that job uh, in August and I went to one of my philosophy professors because by then I'd taken a ton of philosophy classes for fun. And I remember looking at him and just being like, oh, Professor Merricks, I'm so sad because um, I'm just sad that I have to be a lawyer <laughs> when I grow up, like, because I really don't like it, <laughs> which I which I discovered about myself this summer. But, you know, that's that's what it is. Um, and I remember him looking at me being like, you don't have to be a lawyer. Like nobody <laughs> <who> <laughs> ever said that you had to do this. If you know, if it turns out you don't like it. um, And it's clear you really like philosophy hmm. uh, philosophy is a really hard job to get. I remember he was, he was kind of clear with me on that, but he's like, but it's great. And of course you should go after it while you're young. Same, same. It, it's the equivalent of like saying, BJ, you should like try out to be a rock star or you could be president maybe. <laughs> um, But he was really supportive and so were some of my other professors and that's, that kind of set me on path. Mm. Um, but yeah, yeah, I do tell my students like, you know, you, you really have no clue what your real desires are when you're 17 and that's when things philosophy is quite helpful and helping you grasp.
0: Yeah. I, um, I've ended up going in other directions. You know, you, um, I'm a digital marketer by day, Yeah, but, uh, you know, this is me getting back into it and yeah. hopefully, you know, um, whether it makes money or not, you know, it'd be wonderful for it to make money. But the uh, uh, it's so interesting how useful, like I got a master's in philosophy from uh, Trinity in uh, Deerfield, Illinois, yeah, and like how useful that's been for business. And oh, yeah. uh, it's so like on paper, you look unemployable, <laughs> except as a teacher. And then I actually went on to teach. You know, it's interesting. Uh, and then I found out I was n- I'm I'm good at certain aspects of teaching. But I'm very bad at uh, uh, motivating people to learn because I don't understand why they don't want to. So,
1: <laughs> oh, no, totally. <laughs> very- Totally. One thing, one of the areas that I work most on is metaphysics and like philosophy of time, and it's one of the classes I like to teach the least, or I find the most difficult. I like to teach it, but I find it the most difficult because it always devolves into me just like being like, "Why don't you love this? Why don't you see it?" <laughs> which is not effective pedagogy. It helps to have a little bit of distance. I found for getting students really like excited about a project, but I I spend about half of my life right now, yeah, in academic administration, which is much more like working in a business than yes. it is, um, like working as a, as a philosopher. And I use philosophy all the time, uh, yeah. in trying to help people reason through a hard decision or trying to make something that's really complex, more clear and systematic, uh, or even just trying to think about different ways of looking at a problem that we're really stuck on. This happens a lot in my job is you just get really stuck in yeah. one way of thinking about how some things should go. And philosophy is really good at Pushing you to think about a different. Po- I, I was literally. I'm looking at my yeah. whiteboard in the office today. Literally describing to one of my colleagues this idea of a budget as a possible world today. No, now, okay. Think about this. <laughs> use modal logic. She, she did not find that particularly helpful, but I found it very <laughs> clarifying.
0: Yeah, I, I can't imagine why she struggled with that. No, um...
1: <laughs> just, just, just use modal logic. This isn't the actual. It's so world. clear. This is a new <laughs> possible world.
0: Oh, yeah. Oh, and part of it, you know, there's a couple different things that uh, definitely resonate with me. And one of them, too, is I like I was always told, like, if you're going to go for philosophy, you have to teach. Right. And so like and then I found out, I'm like, oh, I don't like teaching like the profession. Like it just felt very grinding to me. But then to find uh, there are other avenues for what you can do. You know, there's all sorts of different ways to uh, express that or to use that uh, desire and passion. That's really um. Uh, Awesome story. I love. Uh, I, I love that idea of the the very like fixated sixteen year old. Um, it's very clear, like why you are the way you are today. Like you were able to to push through and achieve something that it's very difficult to get a job in philosophy, just like you said. Oh, and that's, yeah, that probably no, comes from that.
1: Like, I, I sometimes also feel like it's like Mr. Magoo. Like, you know, you're just kind of blindly walking through, optimistically, <laughs> all of these obstacles, <laughs> and it just, he yeah. just, just keeps working out. Like the crane picks <laughs> you up right before you fall in the ditch, and you end up at Notre Dame. <laughs> it's, yeah,
0: no, it's a good, it's a good, really... it's a
1: good, uh, good system if you can get it. It helps to be blissfully unaware of all the danger. I think. <laughs>
0: Yeah, the the classic uh Han Solo, never tell me the odds, right? Yeah, like, exactly. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so tell me a little bit, how did you get interested um specifically in the good life? Like that seems to be a very big part of what you do.
1: Yeah. I I've been interested in ethics since I was a college student. As I said, like that was the first class mm. that got me hooked. And and I went to Oxford for the first part of graduate school and um picked moral philosophy as one of my areas to study there. But then you're encouraged to specialize, like hyper-specialize in graduate yeah. school. Um, and so when it came time to specialize, I decided I really wanted to work on time and really wanted to do a really a technically challenging version of it. So I went into metaphysics and kind of left that behind. Um, but I always liked reading moral philosophy, and I found myself thinking about it still all the time. And I inherited, after my first year at Notre Dame, our really big Introduction to Philosophy course. Notre Dame requires every single student to take intro to philosophy. And we do it in lots of small sections, but also a couple of really big lecture courses. And so I got the big lecture course, and originally I taught it the way that I had learned how to teach intro philosophy when I was a graduate student, which is introduction to the philosophy major. So you, you do Plato and Aristotle and Descartes and Kant, and you do some logic puzzles like the liar paradox, and you give them exams. And, uh, and you hope they have a good time. And that course honestly does not make a ton of sense at Notre Dame because every student is taking it and like two or 3% of them optimistically have any interest in taking more philosophy classes. So you've like prepared them for something that they have no interest in continuing on with. And this, after a few years, started to really uh, weigh on me. Around the same time, my baby brother went to college, and so I suddenly became really personally invested in like what happens to people in college, and, and financially invested. I paid my brother's tuition. So I oh, uh, was like, "What is what What exactly is going on for people in college? And uh, talked with some colleagues here about what we were doing in intro, and, and basically came to this idea that really wanted – To have a big discussion in our intro courses with students about what, what the good life consists in, advice they might find useful from philosophers, some of whom we'd already been studying, but we hadn't been introducing them under this mode of presentation. Like we'd been introducing Plato as this dead guy who had crazy views about like authoritarian governments and tripartite souls. But we were kind of underselling Plato because he also has really relevant views about like how hard it is to be happy in, in a democracy, which turned out mm. in like 2016 to be a question on a lot of my students' minds.
0: Um, <laughs> yeah, very, and, very relevant. Yeah. Oh,
1: my gosh. So, So I had some partners in crime here on campus, and we basically thought, like, let's try to blow up our current intro class and really think about what it would mean to teach people about philosophy or introduce people to philosophy as a way of life. Hmm. And realize that there are a lot of other faculty uh, all around the country who think about similar questions, and that was really energizing. I find thinking about what I want to teach people about is a really good heuristic for me to think about what I want to research myself because I I, I that helps me get in. Idea of where the interesting questions are, and what my state, what I have to say about those questions, and so that the Good Life Project really started with thinking about what I wanted to teach freshmen at Notre Dame and what I wanted my brother to be learning at Brown. That's where he went to college, um, and then it just grew really rapidly. Uh, and now, you know, I I think it's one of these really exciting intersection topics in philosophy where there's an opportunity for really interesting new work and virtue ethics. And I wish a whole lot more graduate students were working in ethics right now because I think it's a, mm. a, there are all kinds of fascinating questions. Um, but they're the kinds of questions that you can study in the evening and then the next morning go and teach a live studio audience. And that's that's like that that's the joy of philosophy, uh, is when, yeah. you, when you get that kind of synergy.
0: Yeah. Um Man, and I, I personally, I'm, and I'm looking for it and I yeah, I know that some, I haven't been able to do like really scholarly research finding it, but uh, those kind of answers or questions are just over the horizon with like gene editing. I mean, some of it's already here, oh. gene editing and the digital landscape. When you talk about like, um, I mean, for me, some of the best literature about what's gonna happen with like meta with Facebook yeah, are like things from science fiction. <laughs> You know, and we have, um, so the, the idea of like embodiment, um, had Dr. Richard Kearney on to talk about physical touch and that, I mean, that was, you know, it, and it was just an it, kind of an introductory volume to the idea of it. And it's just such a, the, that idea of embodiment, uh, and what we're losing or in or, what we're gaining by, by these kind of digital presence is, um, <laughs> I, it'd probably be better if we thought about it beforehand before we just like <laughs> start messing with our neurochemistry. But you know, <laughs> so far we've decided to play catch up. So
1: <laughs> I think about this, I think about this all the time. Actually, I was just at a research seminar where I was listening to a paper by a political theorist who works on how to make online, fully online communities more democratic. And like what would it mean mm. to tell if an online community is acting democratically? But one thing I was, that was going on in the back of my mind during the seminar is how quickly in my adult lifetime the default has switched with respect to how normal digital life is. So I remember yeah. when I was a college student, you would have a class on like minds and machines. Mm-hmm. That the, the professor would really have to argue uh, that you should think of yourself like a computer like that like that would be something that would be really strange and like far out and the philosophy professor um would give you Turing and give you um readings to try yes. to convince you is more real than you think it is. And yeah. now kind of under the surface the default is totally switched where I have to tell I have to try to argue students out of the view that they're computers. Like they yeah. really think of themselves as fleshy computers that move into different software spaces and that like synchronize or don't synchronize with other computers um and the like it just seems like the most natural thing in the universe for us to think of ourselves like as digital lives as just being lives and digital yes. communities as just being the community that i'm part of and i'm a computer that's located in south bend and um and it's just like when when did that default switch what were philosophers doing when that happened
0: yeah yeah, I mean, it, it's really, yeah, I, I do feel like there's a huge gap in in what's coming and what we have prepared for. So I think that's, I mean, that's part of even what uh, I hope to just bring more and more to the forefront uh, with with chasing Leviathan. But I think, you know, it's uh, part of the reason I'm so interested in your work with uh, time is I think that that provides a, a slightly different uh, angle to view a lot of these things. Um, so Talk me through kind of the uh, the framework uh and your kind of argument, and then we can, you know, pursue more specific topics uh for your book, Time Biases, which if you want to sh- yeah. you can show that cover, you know, the yeah. <laughs> convince Available people. wherever
1: fine books are sold. There you um, go or Oxford University <laughs> Press and Amazon. Uh oh, yeah. Also Kindle version. Uh yeah. Speaking so the of idea, digital presence, time yeah. is also. I, I, they came out of another class at Notre Dame uh, mm. uh, eight years ago. I was asked to teach this interdisciplinary class about time to sophomores, mm. and you can only really get away with like one or two weeks of teaching non-philosophy majors about the metaphysics of the passage of time before they totally lose interest and hate the class. So I I felt a lot of pressure to get interested in how like psychologists think about time and how people in literature mm. think about time and economists think about time. And so I started reading to try to find interesting things to to bring to class to for us to read together in the mm. seminar. And then realized how many questions I had. Like I really wish somebody had taught me about how psychologists think about cross-time trade-offs when I was young, because I would have been really engaged by it. So the the premise of the book is. There are two kinds of time biases, which philosophers Mm. have been talking about since the ancient Greeks, but contemporary philosophers very rarely talk about in the same conversation. The first kind of time bias is one that is uh, of interest to philosophers and psychologists and economists and is constantly debated, and Mm. that is what we might call near bias, And it's basically our tendency to care more about events that are going to happen sooner and to care less about events that are going to happen in the more distant future. And we care about this because this near bias predicts all kinds of seemingly bad decisions that we make. So one example that gets talked (laughs) about all the time is like the marshmallow test. You know, Walter Mischel, that very famous late philosopher from Columbia University, um, did this really famous set of experiments with four year olds, where he uh, he offered them one treat immediately, but if they could wait and not eat the immediate treat after ten or fifteen minutes, the experimenter would come back and give the kid a uh, double the treats, like double the yeah. MMs, double the marshmallows. Yep. And they studied these kids and their ability. Who, which of the kids decided to wait, and which of the kids decided to consume the treat right away? Which of the kids are near biased and which of the kids are um, are more uh, farsighted in their treat evaluations, (laughs) and then like followed those kids over time and looked at their ability to delay gratification in other ways and their life outcomes, and then we have this big debate about like how much you can predict at age four the kind of (laughs) adult that somebody's going to be. All of that, you know, all that is just maybe familiar to listeners, but that's near bias. And psychologists and economists are very interested in measuring. How near biased we really are, and what whether it depends on which kinds of decisions that we're making. This is really important for the government to know. For instance, because we mm. want people to save money for retirement, and we want people to invest in long term schemes so that they don't um, they don't they don't become destitute. Yes. Uh, but how do you convince people? my age I'm 39 to care about their 65 year old self you need to know like how near biased they are in order to set set up a system that's going to finance people's retirements. Um, philosophers have always been interested in near-bias because there's a big debate about whether it's ra- it's good or bad. like Plato mm. thought it's bad in the Protagoras, Plato uh, and Protagoras are having this dialogue or Socrates and Protagoras are having this dialogue about how you should raise your kids and Socrates tells his friend, look, we don't have fur, we don't have sharp teeth, we don't have a lot of natural advantages as humans. The one thing we have is our wits. And the mm-hmm. most important thing we can teach our kids is how to be farsighted, like how to measure the, the future potential future outcomes of their decisions now so that they can set themselves up to be in favorable circumstances and live the good life. Um And so Plato came down really hard that you shouldn't be biased towards events that are going to happen sooner. You should try to cultivate farsightedness about your life. But other philosophers like Derek Parfitts, very famous philosopher in the 1980s, says, why? That's 65-year-old Megan is so freaking different to 39-year-old Megan. She's going to be significantly older. She's going to have really different desires and interests. Mm-hmm. Her body's going to be quite different. She's causally like related to me, but that's about it. Why don't I just give my money to sixty five year olds now that I care about, rather than hiding it in a stock? Ah. Um, and like you know, from the standpoint oh, of yeah. like you know what it means to care about the right kinds of things, she she could be another woman as far as I'm concerned. And so, far sightedness mm. is is not it doesn't shouldn't have the significance that Plato thought it was. So that's that's near bias. Now, the second bit, which philosophers have been obsessed with since the Greeks, but psychologists and economists have only relatively recently become interested in. Is what we might call future bias. Mm. And this is our tendency to care a lot more about what's happening now and what will happen in the future than caring about what has already happened. And you guys, again, already like kind of know this don't cry over spilled milk um, captures that, captures future bias in a simple adage. This idea of if there's nothing that you can do to affect something that has already happened in your life, don't. Bother being concerned about it. There's nothing rational or irrational about somebody who like wishes or doesn't wish that some horrible event hadn't happened in their past. Um, if there if there's no way that caring about some issue some event could affect the decisions that you're making towards the future, then it's not important.
0: Uh just uh just a side note, one of my favorite moments in my own life was my wife was pregnant and she had a bowl of cereal that she really wanted and she took it out in the car. And she spilled it in the car and she started crying and I should have felt worse than I did, but I couldn't help but really enjoy saying... Honey, don't cry over spilled milk. <laughs> that definitely, that probably
1: definitely yeah, made like, it worse. I suspect. I
0: know. So. I, I, I definitely. Yeah. I, but it was worth <laughs> it for the pun. Like it was worth it for the connection. I was like, I'm a terrible husband right now, but I can't avoid saying this. Like,
1: yeah. Um, I mean, and then gets, she started
0: gets, laughing, so she was a good sport. But yeah. I mean, it gets into
1: this question about regret, this is one of the things I talked yeah. about in the book. Is like, what? How does a rational agent think about? Um, whether she's now living up to preferences that she had in the past or whether she regrets things that happened in the past um, and how in control do you feel like you are of your life. The Greeks and the Romans um, thought about this question a lot, especially the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. Um, Lucretius, this very famous Epicurean philosopher, thought the point of philosophy was to try to provide therapy to people who are afraid of dying. Like one of the biggest Mm. issues that we face is that we are going to die and we're distinct from other animals and that we become aware of this and it terrorizes us. And so Epicurus thought that one of the ways to get over your fear of death is to stop being so future biased. And he gives this Mm. famous argument that... We oftentimes think that death is going to be bad for us because there's this, all this great future that we're going to miss out on. We have this kind of fear of missing out or FOMO. So I think, like, it'll be sad when I die because I won't be able to watch new shows on Netflix, or it'll be sad when I die because I won't be able to be with my grandchildren, or, or like, all these th- events that I'm not going to get to be a Similar, part
0: of. similar, yeah.
1: Yeah, totally. Yeah. These are, these are the <laughs> my mind. Um, but Bakira says, look, think about the fact that there was this huge epic of human history before you were ever born that you missed out mm. on. There were TV shows you didn't get to see in the 70s. There are uh, family members that you did not get to visit with because you didn't yet exist. Mm. Um, that doesn't cause you to wake up in a cold sweat in the middle of the night and need your like safety blanket. Um, so if you're not afraid of all of all of this stuff you missed out on in the past, you similarly ought not to be afraid of everything that you'll miss out on in the future after your death. Um, and this is a way of kind of trying to use uh, use. To identify future bias as an irrational bias, and then say, "Look, if you can get over this bias, you can have a way of convincing yourself that death won't be so terrible." Hmm. Um, so philosophers have been debating this for ages, and psychologists and economists less so. But the point of the book is first, I think we should think about both of these time biases in uh, as as uh, as more similar than they are different. So if you think near bias is irrational. Some of those same arguments are can apply to why you think it's irrational for somebody to not care about their past. Um, because and, of the way
0: you conceive, time is going to affect both, correct? The yeah. Way, like-
1: uh, I mean, the main arguments that philosophers have liked for why it's bad to be biased are they fall into two categories. First, there's the old Plato argument, which is basically, look, if you're the kind of person who cares more about the nearby than the far away, you're going to make all kinds of bad trade-offs and you're going to end up with a less good life. You're going to have a bad retirement. You're going to have fewer marshmallows. It's just, your life is going to go less well. Um, So that's the first kind of argument is like, you want a good life. Near bias is going to, on the whole, lead you to have a worse life. So you should try to cure yourself of your near bias. Another argument is this kind of arbitrariness argument, which is just like, when some good event is scheduled in your life t- is arbitrary. Like it doesn't matter right. if you're going to get a marshmallow on Tuesday or a marshmallow next Wednesday. If if you're certain to get the marshmallow and the marshmallow is going to be just as tasty to you whenever you get it, then right. you you just shouldn't care about what day of the week it is. Um, we might call that an arbitrariness argument against near bias. And one of the tricks in the book, so the book has this structure. The first third is like reminding you that these are great arguments against near bias. And you really mm-hmm. want to be the kind of person that waits for two marshmallows and you really hate being arbitrary in your preferences. And then the trick comes the second third of the book where I show that similar kind of success and arbitrariness arguments apply to not caring about your past. There are all kinds of way that ways that people don't Care, who don't care about their past will make bad trade-offs. Yeah. And there are all kinds of ways that people who don't care about their past are guilty of arbitrariness. And so if you thought the first third of the book was making good arguments, you should think that, uh, we have just as much reason to care about our past as we do our future, which is shocking to a lot of philosophy. Yeah. That, that's like the crazy twist because, um, why on earth would somebody, uh, care just as much about things that have already happened as things that are going to happen. And then the last third of the book is like, what would it mean to live your life as somebody who is temporally neutral? Would it require this kind of crazy stoicism? Like the Stoics and the Epicureans have all these arguments about, like once you realize that once you read their philosophy, you're no longer bothered by the fact that you're going to die. Other people's deaths doesn't even matter to you anymore. Like, (laughs) you know, Epicurus himself has this horrible line where he's like, You know, when you when you think about how sad you're going to be when your son dies, just think about like how sad you were with that time you broke your favorite pot, and this is just the same. And so, um, don't feel bad about it because you you know, like it's all it's all the same from the standpoint of the universe. That's crazy. That's not a good life. So I try in the last third of the book to show how a temporarily neutral person can still have a lot of emotions, Mm. um, can have a rich emotional life, can have a rich moral life, but are just going to think about some moral and emotional. And rational puzzles differently than somebody who leans into their time biases. But there so, you go. You don't have to read the book. You probably still should, but <laughs> that's there, the spoiler.
0: Well, so uh, full disclosure, um, you know, I, I meet with a guest once a week. And yeah. so I saw the price tag for your book and I was trying to convince myself. <laughs> I was trying, not really myself, I would buy it, but my yeah. wife, because I already buy like several of the books that. So I, I downloaded the sample I started reading. Yeah. And one of the things that really uh you know I got a a good feel for what you're doing, I think um but a big part of your argument for the past, and I can see it even as you're talking about it um one it it was a fascinating reading as far as I got you know um but the uh uh the idea of shaping preferences and how important preferences are to your argument, and I understand I'm just reading the introduction. Can you talk a little bit more about what preferences are um because for me, that was. Not confusing. I understand you're using, it, I think, in a technical sense, but it's hard not to uh, conflate like preferences in like this, like moral decision making, with like, I, you know, I prefer my espresso without milk in it, and my wife likes to do like lattes, right? Yep. And that's like, yeah, obviously, obviously, yeah, yeah, <laughs> like, 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 that's not it. That's not an important preference shape, or maybe it is. Maybe, maybe I, I misunderstood.
1: No, this is uh, this is also one of the major topics in this new love book that I've been working on. Hmm. Uh, what does it mean to understand our responsibility for our preferences, our rational responsibility or our moral responsibility for the preferences that we have? And there's one camp of philosophers, I think Aristotle falls into this camp, who think that the point of ethics and the point of thinking about rationality is to talk about whether actions or behaviors are moral or rational, but we can't, uh, we really can't criticize people's uh, basic attitudes. Um, And certainly not, we can't criticize their attitudes, certainly not if they don't have any control over like acting on those attitudes. So for somebody like Aristotle, if uh, if you tell me, PJ, that you are really happy that World War Two happened, like you just think that's great. That's part of like you're, you're for it. Um, somebody like Aristotle is going to say, whatever, man, like, you know, that's like as long as as long as you can't do anything to cause another war. Or get in a time machine and, like, make sure that World War II happens. As long as you don't have any power to act on such a preference, it's kind of indifferent from the standpoint of morality. Um, So the whole point of morality and rationality is to talk about what people do and not what people think. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I don't think that's right. I think that, like, there's all kinds of uh, attitudes, desires... Um, wishes that we have for the world that we might not be able to act on, but they can be reasonable or unreasonable. Like I would totally love to have a conversation with you about if you, if you turn out to be the guy who's like pro world war two, I would love to sit down and unpack what your reasons are for having that <laughs> preference. Cause I think that there's something wrong with it. Um, there's another group of philosophers, and this is probably much more common in contemporary philosophy mm. Decision theorists who, all, who think that preferences are the thing that's interesting, but the individual uh, uh, hopes or desires or wishes or preferences that an agent has, we can't really criticize. We can only criticize their total packages of preferences. So what do we mean by that? Well, maybe you prefer chocolate ice cream to vanilla ice cream, and you prefer vanilla ice cream to strawberry ice cream. And those two ice cream preferences are like you're just you just pre-programmed with them. There's no reason you have them. You just like PJ comes into the world with those preferences. But then you tell me that you also prefer strawberry ice cream to chocolate ice cream. So your preferences have this logical feature of being what what philosophers would call intransitive. So you prefer, right. Uh, vanilla to chocolate, chocolate to strawberry, strawberry to chocolate. Um, uh, you're in this like weird little loop where like if I'm your <laughs> ice cream salesman, I can, keep, uh, I can keep like selling you new kind of ice cream for a penny and you would keep making the trade until I took all of your money from you. Um, that seems irrational according to a lot of decision theorists. So we can criticize people's preferences based on like how they all stick together and the logical structure mm-hmm. that they have. But the individual preferences are are um, beyond reproach, and I think that's also a little bit like short sighted for the reasons I just mm. mentioned. I think that again, there's all kinds of preferences we might not act on, and they're individual preferences that we think should be based in reasons. We think people do a better job when they've reasoned a little bit more about their preferences. We don't care, I, you know. I don't lose sleep at night discovering that no people don't have great reasons for why they like vanilla ice cream over chocolate ice cream. But if somebody tells me they just like like a certain gender for president of the United States, and they don't like another gender for being president, and that's just how they're programmed. It's like vanilla ice cream. I just like men to be president. I'd be like, no, we gotta have a conversation about that. Like that's the kind of <laughs> preference that deserves like more reasons. And that's the kind of arbitrariness that philosophers should criticize. So in the book. I lead off with talking about, like, let's think about our preferences as the kinds of things that we seek reasons for. And as the preferences are a bigger and bigger part of our life, we want better and better reasons for, even if we don't exactly know how we're going to act on them. And this is really important because one of the themes of the book is uh, trying to convince you that you should prefer really good events to happen no matter when they would happen in your life. And you should prefer bad events to happen no matter when they would happen in their life. So I want, I want there to be Mm. enough of a logical framework for uh, if you tell me PJ that um, suppose let's take one step back. This will sound a little wacky, but suppose you have amnesia and you can't remember what happened last month and you have the... Uh, Sounds about right. You have like two... Oh yeah, sorry, <laughs> all are COVID. Um, but yeah,
0: yeah Actually, ahead, it doesn't
1: even need to be amnesia. Suppose you're just kind of yeah. like losing track of time and mm. you can't remember if you already did this really boring project for work or you ha- you have that boring project coming up. You might think that you hope you've already done it and just forgot. And it's, it's already happened, so you don't have to still do it. My view about being rational in, uh, in your thinking about time is that you should be totally indifferent about whether you've already completed the boring project or whether the boring project is still coming up, holding everything else equal, like your likelihood of finishing the project or how much you'll get paid or whatever. You shouldn't care about whether a bad event is still going to be in your future or still going to be in your past once the probabilities have come into account. And to even ask that question, mm-hmm. it has to be fair game that you could have the wrong preference about a bad thing that already happened to you and that you forgot. Like there has to be enough logical space for me to even talk about you being wrong for wishing that a bad thing had already happened. So that's just kind of like setting things up so the debate even makes sense. And the, the opening part of the book is like we have to talk about preferences in a different way if we're even going to start to criticize people for their preferences about the past.
0: So, uh, and help me here, because I'm I'm tracking with you. To me, it seems very intuitive that uh, people's preferences about the past mm-hmm. are important, right? When you talk about the World yeah. War II, like, that argument makes sense to me. Yeah. Like, if someone's like, you know, uh, I, it's a real shame that Hitler uh, lost. You know, we'd be like, they're like, I mean, I wouldn't do anything about it today. You'd be like, I have a problem. Like, yeah. <laughs> like I think everyone feels that revulsion, right? Like. Yeah. Uh, there is, like, we understand there's an immaturity. Uh, I've seen memes where, like, uh, for instance, people found early photos of Joseph Stalin. They're like, actually, he was a pretty good-looking dude. And I'm like, you know, I don't think that this is the way that we should, like, think about Joseph Stalin. You know, welcome yeah. to the Internet. It's a strange place, right? And, you know, it's all like, uh, playing the uh, Russian national anthem over memes and stuff like that. Like, you know, digital marketing, I'm, I, I keep up with this stuff, right? Yeah. And it's like, I... You know, uh, it's, it's very strange to see then how pe- the same people then turn and like, Oh wait, this whole Russia Ukraine thing's yeah. not so <laughs> yeah. like, Oh, maybe not so much. Um, but then when you're talking about, uh, kind of this in- intuition that I'm like, for me, it seems like really obvious that I would have, I I don't want to have to, and maybe it's the, the expectation, uh, and me not dealing well with the expectation of pain. That's often a yeah. large, large part of the pain. Um, but uh, if I have a bad project, I would have hoped that would already be done. Right? Like, <laughs> yeah. I'm like, did I already do that annoying thing?
1: That's what yeah. book is meant to be scandalous is then the rest right. of the book is trying to convince you that you shouldn't feel that right. way. So let me give you, I'll give you some arguments.
0: Yes. Yeah. yeah. No, that's I. I I'm following with you right up to that point. Yeah. So this right. is obviously the point of the book. I'm excited. It's yeah, so just yeah.
1: like setup of like, this book is going to say something surprising. <laughs> um, Cause most of us think like, yeah, I totally wish, The bad thing had already happened, and the good thing is still coming up. So here's the first argument. Let's suppose that you are the kind of person who thinks it's important to avoid regrets. And what do I mean by this? I mean that you're the kind of person that when you're making a decision, you take into account how your future self is going to think about the decision that you made. And you do this so that you don't succumb to temptations. I'll give you an example. Like PJ, let's suppose that I'm not a drinker, but let's suppose that I were. You and I are out to, uh, for drinks after this podcast and I have a cocktail, but I think it's pretty good. And I know if I have a second cocktail, I'm not gonna be able to drive home and I'm gonna regret it. But the waiter comes around and offers me a second cocktail. And at the moment, I know that my future self will wish that I had not had the cocktail. (laughs) Right now, my present self wants the cocktail. And so I decide to get the cocktail, even though I know as soon as I consume it and forever after, I will wish that I had not gotten the cocktail. It seems at least rationally permissible for me to say when I'm offered a tempting thing, like a second cocktail even though I want this now, I prefer this now, I am not going to take it because I know that in the future, I'm going to wish that I hadn't taken it. So we can call that, I call that principle weak, no regrets. It's just kind of principle of saying like you're allowed, you're at least allowed to take into account how your future self is going to think about the decision you're about to make. So that sounds really good. That's a great principle for avoiding drinking too much at parties. Um, and generally a great principle for realizing that you're an extended person through time who is responsible to yourself in the future. Well, you know,
0: overspending also a great example, right?
1: Um, well, that principle does not play well with future bias and here's why. So PJ, let's suppose you really love cookies. I do love cookies. Um, and I say, PJ, I will give you either a half a cookie right now, or if you wait three days from now, I'll give you seven cookies. More cookies are always better in this world.
0: That's what i was about to say <laughs> um, so <laughs> That sounds it. like heartburn to me, but okay, yeah. It's it's kind I'm talking with you. <laughs> this is
1: like the reverse of Walter Mischel's marshmallow test. Marshmallow test, you get Yum. more... Uh, uh, oh, no, sorry. Flip it around. Sorry. Let's suppose I'm going to offer you seven cookies right now, or I'll offer you one cookie seven days from now. So this is the reverse of Walter Misch- Mischel's test. If you wait, you get less. Yeah. It seems obvious that you should take the money and run, like take the maximum amount of cookies sooner rather than later. Um, you're going to have a better life, a more cookie-filled life, if you take that option. But if you have a no, if you're a no regrets kind of guy and you discount the past, you might give yourself this following crazy argument. If I wait and don't take the seven cookies right now, then my future self won't care because my future self is only going to be excited that he could get some cookies a week from now, like even one cookie a week from now. He only cares about future cookies. And so the fact that he could have gotten seven cookies a day ago is something that he doesn't want to be in that world. He wants to be in a world where he has cookies to look forward to. So if I think my, and I think as soon as you consume the cookies, they're going to be in the past and you're not going to want them anymore. It's just like a temptation case where like, as soon as I drink the second drink, I prefer that I hadn't done it. Uh, But unlike the temptation case, it seems obvious that you shouldn't wait for fewer cookies. You should just take as many cookies as you can possibly get right now. So either the, the, the no regrets principle is wrong. Or you should care about your past cookies. <laughs> like rational agents should keep track of how many cookies they've already gotten. It seems obvious to me it's the second. I mean, there's lots of philosophers that debate all the different logical like moves that you could make in response to a puzzle like this. But it strikes me that it should be a requirement of rationality. You, you keep track of the cookies you've already eaten and you give yourself credit for having eaten them. Uh, but that so it's, not a, it's not a
0: question of... It's not a question of time, it's a question of maximum cookies. Yeah,
1: just it just requires like being neutral with respect to your past cookies, like keeping those on, on the books. Um, so that's one argument, is like you're going to end up not making silly ar- silly trade-offs uh, by keeping track of uh, some of your sunk cookie costs. <laughs> um, and that's an underappreciated point about rationality. Another really simple point, and this gets us back to the old dead Roman philosophers, um... Let's suppose that uh, I get a bad diagnosis from my doctor. He says, you've got a really serious um, kind of tumor and you only have a year left to live. And I think, oh my gosh, this is a disaster. I am incapable of having a good life. I have one year left and it's going to be a year where I'm quite sick and I'm not able to do many of the things that give my life value. Uh, there's nothing to look forward to. This is the worst news ever. I, ha- I like My life is, is ruined. That's Mm. a natural feeling. But you might think, well, there's another way of looking at it, um, which is uh, the way and the way the philosopher Seneca would describe this is like by turning around, by if you have no good future left to look forward to, you still have the opportunity to contemplate the great life you've already had. and Maybe I spend my remaining year reflecting on how wonderful existence has been so far and all the adventures that I've enjoyed and the story that I'd like to tell of my life. And that's not gonna be enough. Like, that's not, you know, that's not gonna make me feel that much better about my disease, but it's a way of me still understanding why I have a valuable life. And somebody like Seneca would say, it's totally arbitrary to think that the only things that give your life value are future things. There are plenty of mm. things in your past that have given your life value, and we're all gonna to come to some point in our lives where we're going to depend on the, those past sources of value more than we could depend on our future sources of value. And so if you care about um, being reasonable and paying attention to value that you ought to pay attention to and being not arbitrary in your preferences, then you should be the kind of person that, pays ju- that is willing to pay just as much attention to good things that happened in your past as you are good things that happen in your future. Um, and I think that part of the, the stoic project is not crazy, um it doesn't require you not caring or turning off your emotions or any of the dumb caricatures of stoicism we ordinarily have. It just requires like realizing that the past has uh has value that we can tap using reason, and that there very well might come times where we want to do that
0: well, I think we see that a lot when uh, as people grow older they uh they use memories in uh, or they view memories as pleasurable right yeah. And you do see, like, um, that seems a very natural human tendency.
1: I think so. And uh, the way, some, one of the ways that um, some of the Stoics talk about this, which also just totally resonates with me, is this idea of a rational person joining up their circles. I think it's Seneca that even uses this metaphor in a couple places. But this idea that people who are really living a good life devote Mm. some time to trying to find the through line in their memories and in their past bits of their story and in their future that they're hoping for and in the life that they're currently living. Like they look for joining up this act of like joining up all of the parts of their life, even if it's really weird, you know, it t- tells this twisty turny adventure of wanting to be a lawyer and then discovering you're a philosopher and then going to outer space. Um, but like that, that process of trying to join up yourself over time, is one of the ways in which we lead good lives. And and I totally believe Mm. that.
0: So is that, um, like we compose, like finally at the end of our lives we're composing a narrative about how we lived and we're like, we're seeing all the pieces come together. Is that kind of the way of saying that?
1: I think so, but but crucially, and I spent some time on this in the book too, that doesn't necessarily mean that as we get older or get near the end of our life, we have to obey the plans and wishes of our past so uh you can imagine I,
0: actually I, i'm sure 16 year old you is still very disappointed you're not oh, a lawyer she's so
1: yeah <laughs> begged you like please kill me before i become a philosophy professor i want to be a rich lawyer oh, um what have you yeah. done it's super interesting oh, man. um no, yeah like yeah no you think um i know a lot of folks you imagine somebody who's been like a lawyer their entire Mm. life, I know a lot of happy lawyers, but imagine you've got a lawyer, somebody who's really invested themselves in their legal career, and at the end of their life, they have a chance to do uh, one more emeritus partnership stint, and that would seem to be very meaningful because it would play into this identity that they've cultivated and this story that they've told themselves about their whole life, but they're just not feeling it anymore. Like they're happy that they used to be a lawyer and now they want to just be, you know, just hang out with their grandkids or watch a lot of Netflix and get involved in hobbies. Like it's totally fine. Like it's fine for – you don't have to strive for a certain kind of external narrative coherence. It's not like we have Hmm. some genre that we're trying to write our lives into. Some philosophers think that, but I really disagree with that. It's mm. more that rational agents pay attention to the things that have been valuable about their past, but also feel totally free to find new sources of value in their future. And time bias mm. says you can do that, whereas other kinds of like more narrative views about the good life are, are also more restrictive. Like you got to, as you get to the end of your life, you really have to stick to the narrative or stick to the story. And, and I don't think rationality should require that of us.
0: So you're looking, yeah, from that perspective, you're looking for more coherence out of your life's narrative, and that's not necessarily the case.
1: Yeah, I think that it, I think you can appreciate the value of events in your past and in your future, and look to to try to find a story that incorporates. I mean, you're living the story that incorporates all of that, but you shouldn't try to like force things into into like an external genre. So, so imagine I, I've been following uh, this really interesting phenomenon recently of elite athletes quitting their sport like wondering, mm. you know, is Naomi Osaka going to quit cuz she's clearly not enjoying tennis anymore. Uh rational agents don't think that because their past selves were really invested in a plan, that fact alone gives them a reason to keep doing it after they don't feel the the preference anymore. Mm. That's the bad kind of honoring sunk costs, and I think maybe Naomi should think about a new career. She's clear tennis is not doing it for her anymore. Um but she should also crucially realize that she can go back and reflect on the last few years and find value in the tennis successes that she had in that period. And just because they already happened in her in her past doesn't mean that their value has in any way emptied out. And so hmm. that's maybe one distinction.
0: Yeah. So and I want to be conscious of your time here because I know that we're yeah, running we up. Got against probably, it, but... I gotta
1: hop off in just one minute or two.
0: All right. So, uh, with that all said, yeah. how would you, uh, for our listeners, what are the, what are the big takeaways for, to to think in this way to help them lead a good life? You've given several good examples already, but, uh, what, what were some good questions they can ask themselves to, to maybe reassess? Am I, am I living with a time bias that's actually hurting my chance of the good life?
1: Yeah, uh, I give in the, in the seventh chapter of the book, I start to lay out my practical advice, which you guys should always be nervous about taking practical advice from philosophers. Uh, <laughs> so true. You know, With a grain of salt. But here's some practices that hmm. I have taken up since I've started thinking more seriously about temporal neutrality. Hmm. First, the last two years have been full of disappointment. Uh, Mm. like I will be looking forward to a trip and then because of COVID, it will get delayed by like a year. Um, I had a trip I was meant to make out to North Carolina that I was so excited about and it got delayed by two years,
0: Mm. which can just
1: feel really devastating, especially when it keeps happening. Yes. Temporal neutrality says, uh, I get frustrated because something I was looking forward to gets pushed forward in time. Hmm. recognizing that that frustration is kind of normal human response, uh, the, we've been wired by evolution to pay attention to things that are more certain and things that are going to happen sooner or are are more likely than things that are happening later. But I can also cause myself to think, uh, even though I might feel frustrated, that trip is going to be just as great for my life two years from now as it would have been next month. And I'll, I'll make myself think about what I'm going to value about that trip when it happens and also be able to give myself like a rational story about why I have that still to look forward to, even if I'm not feeling the anticipation right now because my emotions just haven't caught up with my preferences. Hmm. Um, that's super helpful. I think another thing that's really helpful, and this gets into the past discounting topic is when things get cancelled or or you hit a kind of roadblock where you're not sure what's going to happen next in life, and I think a lot of folks are in that situation as now as well. they just don't know what to look yeah. forward to anymore, and they're yeah. wonder and and they're burned out and kind of despairing because of that Pat, being getting rid of your future bias and cultivating an appreciation and contemplation of the past can be extraordinarily helpful in those kinds of stressful situations. I think about another stoic philosopher, Marcus Aurelius who had like a stressful life. There was a pandemic. He was fighting a war with the Germans. He was emperor of Rome. He had a lot going on and there was massive uncertainty. Mm-hmm. And he writes in the meditations in his journal, uh, I keep wanting to go on vacation. I'm like anybody else. I really want to like just get, get, have something to look forward to, to go to a quiet, restful place. And I realize that that's not available to me right now. But mm-hmm. I I have to remind myself that I always have the option of going into my memories and enjoying them and realizing that no matter what circumstances i might be put in in life like you know stuck in my basement zooming for 20 hours away from people i love not able to go to the ocean or the mountains i have mm. cultivated this memories of being with these people of being in the mountains and being in the ocean and those are part of my life and they're they're always there available for reflection and appreciation and it's something that you try you, it's something you carry with you and i think Again, realizing that you have those kind of practices to time travel back into your past, to travel into your distant future rather than the nearby future, gives you a lot more freedom for enjoying aspects of your life than you'd get if you're just stuck in this really narrow-minded, only the nearby future matters.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think that's a great way to end, especially since I know that you have another appointment. But I just wanted to say thank you. And uh, I think that's super, a very helpful way to think about it. Uh, So if you enjoyed today's discussion, uh, please uh, like, share and subscribe so that someone else can hear it too.